Hello and welcome to the Well-Managed Hive. I'm your host, Lewis Cobble. I'm an apiary inspector with the North Carolina Department of Agriculture. Today we dive into the economics of beekeeping with an ag economist. Wally Thurman went looking for effects of colony collapse disorder in the marketplace after its onset in 2006-2007. What did he and his colleagues discover? You might be surprised. Join me as I speak with Dr. Wally Thurman. Let's go. My guest this morning is a William Neal Reynolds Professor of Agricultural and Resource Economics at North Carolina State University. His research and teaching interests are in agricultural and natural resource economics, recent research at the nexus of agricultural and natural resource economics includes the evaluation of land conservation policy effectiveness, analysis of market coordination of pollination services by honeybees, the potential cost of honeybee disease, like colony collapse disorder, and analysis of forestry and fishery markets. He has served as an editor of the American Journal of Agricultural Economics and is a senior fellow of the Property and Environment Research Center. He teaches undergraduate courses in agricultural markets and graduate courses in econometrics. Please welcome my guest today, Dr. Wally Thurman. Good morning, Dr. Thurman. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, uh, hello, Lewis. Very nice to very nice to be here. <laughs> so looking forward to this. Oh, thank you very much. So. On the first episode of this little podcast, uh, my guest was Dr. Jamie Ellis from the University of Florida, and we spent a little time bemoaning uh, the the doom and gloom that the media uh, puts forth regarding beekeeping. And I think we both kind of agreed that, yeah, there are some bee health challenges out there, but the sky is not falling uh, nearly as far or as fast as the as the media might have us believe, and I think that maybe you you might be in the same camp. And uh, so, I was hoping maybe you could tell us, uh, you know, how you got to that camp. And uh, but before we get started, uh, do you want to confess that you know, I'm I know a, I'm an expert, more of an expert with bee health, less of an expert with economics, and so just kind of as a baseline. Uh, the concepts that uh, that I understand about economics are pretty simple, like supply and demand, risk reward, opportunity cost, guns and butter. You know, kind of. So I'm kind of at a very elementary level. And uh, so, um, tell us what you got. Yeah, well, that's uh, if that's in your economic toolkit, I'd say you've uh, you got most of it. You know, you, you <laughs> learned that in your first principles, uh, maybe first couple of classes in economics and then it's just more math and statistics uh, elaborating on those themes so so thanks yeah no um yeah you know there is a there's kind of a camp mentality and uh i accept your characterization of there are challenges to honeybee health that have economic important economic implications uh but uh, but the sky seems not to be falling like the way you put it as Mm -hmm. far and as fast as it as as many say and i guess what's remarkable is that if you're uh, uh, is how uh how loud and numerous the the camp seems to be the, the claims that uh, honeybee collapses is, is a is not only dire but it's a signal of some broader environmental catastrophe mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah i i think there's uh there is a there is a debate out there i was at i was at apomondia and in uh, Montreal this fall, which is the biannual uh, Congress of Beekeeping Societies. And, and it was very evident there among bee, bee scholars or bee researchers. I was more of a, a gadfly there. And, uh, you know, there, there are people that are just very alarmist and concerned and others who say, well, no, it's kind of business as usual with some, you know, with some challenges that need to be addressed. So, right, right. so yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's an issue. Yeah, so back in, I don't know, uh, 2010, 11, 12, you know, you're hearing about colony collapse disorder, and, and uh, as an economist, you, you and maybe some friends started looking, looking around for evidence in the marketplace of uh, honeybee problems. And uh, so how'd that go? 
Yeah, if you don't mind, I'll back up just a little bit. Um, sure. I'll, I, I am an observer of the bee world. I'm fascinated by honeybee biology and other biological issues, but wow. I'm an economist. Um, I, don't, I don't understand the biology or the, or the management uh, techniques other than from what I learned. Um, and I mean, the way I got into all this was uh, for, throughout my career, I've studied agricultural policy. Uh, in North Carolina, uh, the tobacco program and peanut program were important ways that the government acted to increase incomes of farmers and landowners and intervened in markets. And, and so that was my bread and butter, is studying those kind of subsidies. Mm-hmm. And in the early 2000s, a graduate student of mine, Ted Schwong, was looking around for a thesis topic, and we kicked around the idea that he should look at the honey subsidy program, about which I knew approximately nothing. Uh, and Ted wrote a very nice dissertation on the subject. Um, there's some a collaboration with uh, other economists, Randy Rucker and Mary Muth, that we ended up doing a, a published study on, you know, you try to subsidize the price of honey and who does that benefit, how much, you know, what does it cost consumers, how much does it benefit beekeepers. Uh, but it was all kind of from a honey perspective. And Ted, uh, Ted would go talk to John Ambrose, the, the mm-hmm. apiarist at yeah. North Carolina State at the time, and he'd come back and he'd say, well, Professor Thurman, uh, I think that you know bees do all this pollination work. And I would say, Ted, your dissertation is not about pollination, it's about honey, you need to focus. And, <laughs> and he did, and he, and he did a nice job, but, but he kind of wore me down over time and intrigued me by this, you know, from an economist perspective, it's a it's a, a two output production function. You got bees right. out there that are producing pollination that ultimately give us almonds and, and blueberries and things right. like that. But then they're also at the same time because of what they do biologically is they're producing honey, which right. is has historically been the main reason for humans to manage them. So so I became interested in pollination, and uh, Randy Rucker and and I started collaborating with Mike Burgett, the Oregon State. Uh, extension apiarist and so now in oh I don't know about 10 years after the honey subsidy program we were intent on that and we were we're looking at you know what explains the fact that almond pollination fees are so much higher than uh, vegetable seed pollination fees and and why are pollination fees essentially zero or negative for clover seed Mm -hmm. and you know those are those examples, you know, they're kind of some natural explanations. Uh, right. When beekeepers are pollinating things like clover, they're actually getting a good honey crop out of it. Right. Uh, when they're pollinating almonds, they're going into energy deficit. And right. the bees are having to be fed, so you have to pay beekeepers more to pollinate those crops. So it's it's just sort of an interesting, you know, part of the part of the compensation of beekeepers comes in the form of money. Part of it comes in the compensation of the honey they take from the crop, mm-hmm. and that works into the economic determination of fees, of, of fees, pollination fees, and we were quite interested in that. And then, and at the time, Mike Burgert had tracked the Varroa, you know, the early 80s introduction of, of Varroa and how that had become important, and so we were educated by him on that. And then colony collapse disorder hit mm-hmm. in 2006, 2007, and so there we were, quite interested in these rather marvelous we thought markets that choreographed this dance of bees, you know, in and out of different crops over the over the seasons. Right. And uh, then then we lead up to the research that, that you mentioned, which is, you know, colony collapse disorder is a big deal, apparently. Uh, overwinter mortality rates, you know, objectively went up dramatically, 20, you know, from prior to the 06, 07 year to after. And so we're... Randy Rucker and Burgett and I are thinking, well, gee, we should be seeing some large economic effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this, if this is truly catastrophic in, in the beekeeping industry, we should be seeing prices go up. We should be seeing quantities go down. You know, you can imagine shifting the supply and demand curves. Right. And um, the, the surprising conclusion that it took us several years to collect data to kind of see how it all resolved but surprising conclusion is eh, not much. You know, loss rates, not denying the loss rates or the increased level of challenges facing beekeepers, 
but there seemed to be a remarkable degree of adaptation and adjustment on the part of the beekeeping industry that minimized the kinds of effects in terms of colonies observed, honey production, pollination provided. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where, you know, that's that's sort of has my personal uh, journey to, to that kind of research. Yeah, so I think uh, uh, Dr. Ellis and I talked about it a little bit as, you know, so the, the media is always talking about uh, the overwinter losses, 30 or 40 percent, and the, the other part that they don't talk about is, hey, w- we split these things in the spring. It's fairly easy to make more bees, and uh, so beekeepers are making up their losses with these splits and, and actually uh, may have tend to have more bees the next year than they did the last year, even though they've had those losses over the winter, and so... Uh, exactly, exactly. I mean, there's, you know, the most recent number that I sort of had at my fingertips is in 2018, the USDA survey of honeybees, there were 2.8 million colonies. That's the highest number in 25 years. Right, right. Uh, but, so if, if that was the only thing you're looking at, it would be, you wouldn't even notice. And, yeah. I, and I think the te- technology of beekeeping, like you're talking about, is, is a big piece of that. Yeah. So I, I hear people talk about, uh, they compare uh, bee losses to, well, what if we lost uh, 40% of our cattle each year? Uh, everyone would be uh, throwing all kinds of research money at that to uh, kind of fix that glitch right away. And I don't know, I don't know if you know anything about cattle. I don't know anything about cattle. Uh, but it seems to me that that might not be um, a very good comparison. It seems like, it, you know, if I lose a cow, it's going to take me a couple of years to, to grow a new cow, as opposed to honeybees, mm-hmm. where if I lose a honeybee or a colony of honeybees, I'll be back in business in six weeks, you know, and and some labor and some cost of, you know, a queen. What do you think? Yeah, they're certainly different in that regard. Uh, you know, a colony, the biological entity of a colony is a capital asset just as a cow or a cow-calf combination is. And, you know, the dynamics are slower for cows. So, yeah, that would not be uh, the first comparison I'd leap to. You know, is it... Uh, I mean, are we throwing enough money at the problem is a, is a question. Mm-hmm. The problem, and you know, the problems I think are the multifaceted challenges. Uh, uh, you know, Varroa has got to be the biggest one, uh, but increasingly, I think people are concluding that newer generations of insecticides, like neonicotinoids, uh, are problematic. You know, the degree to which we could debate. Uh, but so there are there are all these things that uh, that make beekeeping more difficult right. than it was. 40 years ago or 100 years ago. And, you know, I mean, one, I guess one perspective of, of mine is that the, 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 reason, the reason consumers of honey and bee-pollinated products shouldn't worry about these kind of issues is because they're people whose businesses depend on managing these problems. Mm-hmm. There are economic actors, namely beekeepers and, and their allies, who are who are strongly incentivized to to do the right thing in terms of managing their bees. Right now, you know maybe maybe those incentives are a little bit diluted when you get to the level of uh, companies that are developing new insecticides that may have deleterious effects on bees. But yeah, I don't think that's a very apt comparison. I'm I'm with you on that. Um, I mean it's uh, the the plight of honeybees certainly has struck a chord. It's a very, seems to be a very salient issue to uh, the population. Right. It's on the front of everyone's brains for sure. No doubt about that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and it was for going back to the, in, in some of our work, we've talked about, you know, the reaction to CCD was, it was immediate. Michael Paul and the food author was, was a strong, you know, this this is a canary in the coal mine kind of situation, he, he said, and it, that persists. That was, you know, that's now over ten years mm-hmm. ago, thirteen, fourteen years ago, 
And it's still the case that, uh, you know, Environment America sent people around my neighborhood in Raleigh, North Carolina, knocking on doors, trying to raise money. And, and their leading pitch uh, was, and I think their campaign is, no bees, no food. Mm-hmm. We're here to save the bees. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I must say, it's, I think you'd need to be a better uh, cultural historian or, or, or anthropologist than I am to understand it, but, but bees are these charismatic microfauna that, that strike <laughs> a lot of chords with people. Right. And so, you know, I think it's, you know, a lot more so than other issues about less charismatic uh, animals that that might be endangered. So it's, yeah, it's it's part of the part of the public discussion for sure. Absolutely. So when you guys looked at uh, at the at the pollination market, kind of post apocalypse, <laughs> what turned up there? Uh, or, or were the uh, growers having to? Uh, I mean, did pollination prices uh, go up significantly in 2007 or 8? You know, the, the our statistical method is we we sort of pretended that we were econ- economists on Mars who didn't know anything about the industry other than looking at the data that we could see. Mm-hmm. So we do, in fact, know something about. It about these markets, but you know, let's just look at the data. Let's look at data on colony numbers in states and nationally. Let's look at data on pollination fees for different crops, on the prices of package bees and queen bees, and, uh, and honey production. So kind of things you might think you would find evidence of colony collapse disorder. And, and the short broad summary is you really didn't see anything that would cause you looking at the data feed on Mars to to raise your eyebrows and, and think something was Oh, there must missed. be a problem going on down there. The, the prices are going crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with, with, the, with the possible exception of almond pollination fees. Mm-hmm. And they've gone up rather significantly, but, but the time pattern didn't quite match with colony collapse disorder. I mean, colony collapse disorder, I, I know that entomologists and they're no some don't like to use that term because it was kind of a catch-all mm-hmm. for maybe a variety of problems. Mm-hmm. But it was, it was a fairly discreet increase in overwinter mortality, you know, pre and post-2007. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's just no evidence except – there's no evidence in those time series I just talked about of dramatic changes with the possible exception of these for, for pollinating almonds. And they went up a couple of years prior to CCD. Oh, so, so 2004, are... 2005, those prices kind of anticipated CCD, if you will, <laughs> and, 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 and in real terms went up. But they've stayed there. They haven't trended upward since then. They've kind of, there's a, a level shift. And, you know, why is that? Well, you know, part of it is there's just this very steady increase in almond acreage. I, I was going to say, I'm gonna, point, I would bet. One million acres. I was going to say that I would bet it had something to do with supply and demand. Right, so there's more yeah. acres of almonds that are that need to be pollinated. Was is where that extra yep. uh, pollination fee was coming from. Yeah, now you know it's a little. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. So the if you look at data on bearing acreage of almonds, and it's all in Southern California, uh, it just is a straight line upward. It's ramping up. You know, I don't know the, what the rate of increase, but uh, you know, a tenth of a million acres per year or something. Really? So it's still less than that, but it's. Oh yeah, I mean the the number. I just looked at the most recent numbers, which I was looking at were 2019, and it's I think it's 1.1 and change million acres, and a few years ago it was you know 800,000, 900,000. Right. So it's definitely continuing to increase. It's increased for 20 years or more. And what that means, and this is sort of really one of the fascinating things about pollination markets, is that it has drawn bees from farther and farther away. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, you're in western North Carolina, and I, I mean, we've talked, I know, you know of beekeepers who are, whose home base is in western North Carolina who make the trek out to California in, in uh, February or March. Right. That, that's that's true, isn't it? 
Yeah, so more actually from eastern North Carolina, so even a little further away. You know, really, the weather is better down east for raising bees. It's a it's a better place to grow your bees over the winter. Uh, but definitely, there are plenty of uh, commercial beekeepers from North Carolina that say, "Oh, um, it's worth my time and effort to drive all the way across the country with my bees." Right. So they're bringing them from. How, how long over. ago do you think that started? The, the first North Carolina beekeeper decided uh, that, that was worthwhile. Yeah, so that's a good question. It was before my time, and uh, I think Don Hopkins would, would be a better uh, uh, source for that, but probably, uh, I, I would guess, 15 years ago, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's it, so if, you know, one question you might ask is, well, I mean, why does that make sense? You know, why would you keep these in North Carolina? And truck them all the way over there when it's not that hard to start up a bee business. And why didn't all this supply response just come from California? Why weren't there more, you know, why didn't you just get more bees housed in California? They're right next door. They wouldn't endure the shipping cost. Mm-hmm. I think the answer to that is off-season forage. Right. That is, you know, the sort of, you know, there are a lot of different routes. There's North Carolina route being one of them. But, you know, if you've got a beekeeper in based in Idaho that ships their bees for the single purpose of pollinating almonds in the early spring. Uh, then afterwards, what do they do? Well, they send them to graze somewhere in the northern Great Plains, probably, mm-hmm. Montana or one of the Dakotas. Mm-hmm. And the forage required for that uh, to support an increasing number of bees is huge. Right. Like that was, I mean, there's some number here's here's some round numbers that i think are kind of interesting uh if there's roughly a million acres of almonds and those acres are stocked at about two colonies per acre so there are roughly two million colonies of bees for the pollination event so earlier so there you are with (laughs) just to back up a little bit just to back up a little bit earlier in the program i think you indicated the current number of bees united states the number of colonies uh, i think you said Two and a half million. Yeah, two point eight is the latest. Two point eight in twenty eighteen. It was two point right, right. Yeah. And California needs two million colonies to to pollinate almonds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just about everybody's yeah. got to go. <laughs> two thirds of every queen drone and worker bee in the United States is in California and fully employed. Right. Pollinating. Uh, pollinating almonds I, I, in, in the month of february i think that's just absolutely remarkable it is incredible yeah yeah so anyway yeah. continue <laughs> i'm sorry for that right no no that's <laughs> i mean that that's the central point they need so many bees relative right. to the number of bees that we have that they you know the way the industry is configured they have to come they have to be transported but then but then you know why don't they just stay there well because now you put them out on summer forage and there's some really good work by uh, an entomologist named Matthew Smart at the University of Nebraska that, that I found interesting. Um, he does some calculations about northern Great Plains forage. And if you take his numbers, that when beekeepers put their bees up in Montana and North Dakota to, to forage, they're put at a density of 80 acres per colony. Okay, so in California, it's a half an acre per colony, right. two colonies per acre. So they're very jammed together. But then when you want to you know, rejuvenate the bees and produce honey from the, from the forage, from the nectar crops they find out there, it's 80 acres per colony. So bee density in almonds is 160 times greater than bee density when they're out the rest of the year, kind of, mm-hmm. you know, keeping the paying the bills and, and producing honey for the beekeeper and for themselves. So in kind of a, I'm trying to put some perspective on that number. So if you take all those bees that were in California and now you go spread them out at this, you know, much more diffuse uh, density that requires 8% of the land mass of the lower 48 States or just to accommodate the bees who are in almonds, and we know that's like, you know, 1.1 million acres, you require the entire land mass of equivalent to Montana plus Minnesota just to wow. 
just to give them some breathing room to recover. So right. a little R&R. So this is a big deal. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, and Smart's done some interesting work. He's an entomologist. Um, Antoine Champetier at UC Davis with colleagues uh, Dan Sumner and Jim Weiland have done a bit of economic work on this and kind of actually their work is what alerted me to this issue that, oh, yeah, it's there's this, you know, later season requirement of forage that supports this very intense way of pollinating that we've that we've evolved. So I think that's uh, that's kind of a current that's kind of a current issue. Right. So whether or not. Yeah, go ahead. This is something that I've definitely been thinking about for the last, I don't know, five years. We hear about pollination or when we hear about a pollination shortage, I only hear about it in the context of almonds. Like as they're moving into the almonds, usually there's some almond grower that, you know, it has come up short. Uh, But so my question is, how many almonds should American beekeepers be obligated to pollinate? And is there a kind of a uh, black box that we can feed in information that will spit out that number? Like how many almonds can we pollinate uh, to keep uh, the almond industry healthy, keep the beekeeping industry healthy, and keep the bees healthy? Like where's that number? Um Perhaps we've surpassed it. I don't know. That's my question. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I don't. Um, I don't think anybody could calculate that number. I mean, I think it's, it, and not just because it's sort of a complicated thing to think about, which it is. But it's, you know, we're we're talking about the demands for. I mean, think of all the actors here. You got, yes. you got people who eat almonds, who buy almond milk because of health concerns. And so there's this, you know, this big demand for almonds. They're a high-value crop. Then there are the landowners in Southern California, the almond orchards, the beekeepers. There are the, uh, the, the food processors. And, and now you throw in... It also requires the coordination of landowners, you know, sunflower and soybean growers in North Dakota. And all these people have to interact to decide what that right number is. And it's just, it's not really a calculation that I don't, that it could be done in any office right. or finite size <laughs> computer. It's, it, it comes out of all these people interacting in markets. Right. So the, the market. Call that, a, call that a facile answer. It's a, it's a very sort of. Right, right. So basically, we're Austrian Hayekian view of the <laughs> view of the world. Yeah, we'll just like kind of let the markets figure it out. I mean, so if the if uh, uh, I mean the what I tell people when I'm interacting with them, so like at the fair, and they ask me how the bees are doing, and I say, look, as long as beekeepers are making money, keeping bees, we're gonna have bees. That pollination is gonna get done as long as it's profitable for pollination to get done. Um, and so. Um, once it's too costly to, to pollinate the almonds or the bee health declines or the, there's not enough money to pay the beekeepers, you know, that's when the things kind of fall apart. You know, the, the market is, or is making those decisions, I think. Yeah, or, or adjustments take place. Right. I mean, I mean an issue, there, there are issues to worry about here. That what I just said is not to imply everything's fine and it can't be improved. Um, and in fact, I, I mentioned Matthew Smart's work. Uh, I don't mean to implicate him in, in anything I say, other than I, I've liked liked his research. One thing he's quite concerned about is change in land use in the Northern Great Plains. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for reasons ha- having nothing to do with bees, people used to grow an awful lot of sunflowers in the Dakotas, and they still do some, but much less. And sunflowers are a great crop for. Uh, for bee forage, right, and now they've replaced them a lot with soybeans and corn, and those are much less good, in fact, right. maybe bad uh, places to forage bees on. And some of that was due to ethanol policy that encouraged us to grow a lot of corn. Some of it was due with changes in uh, conservation reserve program. And so there, you know, there are policy things that might be smart to do: modify the CRP, modify the ethanol subsidy. 
uh, or things that just might make markets for forage work better mm-hmm. in the northern Great Plains to support pollination. Right. Uh, and I think, you know, this the, 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 the interesting biology of bees and the way the industry has developed is you sort of have to look away from almonds to see where some of these issues are, and it's, it, a lot of it has to do with forage these days. Right. And right. I'm, I'm talking about the northern Great Plains. Of course, the beekeepers you're talking about in southeastern North Carolina, they've, they've got other issues with where their bees work and, and play in the off-season. Right, right, right. So it's, it's, a, it's a complicated picture. There's a lot of stakeholders um, at, at play here. And it's it's not nearly as simple as I think a lot of folks would like to make it. Um, tell me. Yep, uh, I agree. So um, I hear a lot about the. Let me see. How do I say it? We hear about the value of honeybees to U.S. agriculture, and so I read uh, stories about the value of that that bees add to u.s agriculture and there's usually a pretty big price tag on that number usually 15 to 18 billion dollars comes to mind Mm -hmm. as an agricultural economist have you ever taken a little peek behind the curtain there to see you know what went into that number is it a is it a good number Uh, yeah i have i mean there's there's work that uh i've done with colleagues rucker and muth on this and we're it's these numbers have been around a long time, and I mean, in short, there's no substance to them. I mean, there's, they really cannot be supported from an economic perspective, but you find them in almost every popular press accounting of a bee problem. You know, bees are beset by such and such disease, and by the way, bees contribute, like you said, the numbers are, are, are big, $15, 20000000000 billion a year. Mm-hmm. Well, first thing is, so those numbers are not credible. Okay. Those kinds of numbers do things like the following. Bees pollinate almonds. Without bees, we wouldn't have almonds. Almonds are worth $6 billion a year in sales. That's okay. roughly true. Right. Therefore, bees are worth $6 billion, right? Because without bees, you don't get any almonds. Well, I mean, Maybe. <laughs> so big problems with that. It's like, how about the land? Would we also say without land, we don't have almonds? So the land is also worth $6 billion. Uh-huh. Well, what about the labor and the water, which is a big issue with almonds? That's another interacting factor in how many bees and almonds we ought to have. How about the water? How about the the, the chemicals that mm-hmm. are applied? I mean, how about all the other inputs? Right. You know, bees aren't that big of a cost share. Everybody, everybody so, can't get all the credit. You've got to spread it around. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> th- th- there's just a huge triple, quadruple counting problem here if you say everything is worth the total value they output. Right, right. Uh, so that's just kind of a fundamental problem. And now I will say that more users of this number have been chastened recently. Now they don't say bees are worth $15 billion. They say bees are associated with economic activity of $15 billion. So okay. it's kind of a <laughs> slight shift, but maybe a good one. Yeah, but if you're watching um, the news, it, what your brain says, oh, they contribute $15 billion, right? Exactly. And, I mean, I would just say a couple other things because it's, it's sort of a pet, uh, pet peeve of mine. You know, it's say, okay, bees are worth, let's say, $15 billion a year. What, what does that even mean? Are, are we contemplating taking an action that would prevent them from extinction? You know, are we contemplating what would life be like in a world without bees and compare it to a world with bees? And they come up with numbers like $15 billion. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, maybe the alarmists, <laughs> pretty extreme alarmists might be saying, oh, yeah, the bees are, you know, honeybees, Apis mellifera are going extinct, which is not even remotely close to true. Right. But, you know, the, the policy actions we're considering are not – these all-or-nothing kind of deals. It's, should we ban neonicotinoid pesticides? Should we alter the criteria for inclusion in the Conservation Reserve Program that would induce people to plant pollinator-friendly forage? Mm-hmm. You know, these are sort of changes, you know, at some kind of margin. Should we do this? Should we do that? And we can t- talk about 
oh, what are the costs and benefits of doing these things? But to say $12 billion is to put a value on a thing, not an action, and it's one of the fundamental principles of economics, I think, that things don't have value or costs. It's actions that have values or costs. Right. Interesting. And then the other, uh, and once you got me talking about it, I can't stop. The, no, I mean, the other thing that I think is is misguided about those sorts of numbers is a lot of the people are using them are in fact justifying habitat preservation for wild pollinators, not honeybees. Mm -hmm. And there's just no connection. I mean, I'm sorry. It's it's like you know you talked about cows. You know, let's. You know, people spend billions of dollars a year eating beef. Cows are very valuable. Therefore, we should save moose habitat right. in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Right. It's just a non sequitur. A <laughs> couple more uh, things I'm curious about. If, uh, if pollination prices in almonds go from $200 to, to $220, or $240. Let's say pollination prices go up by 10 or 20%. How does that mm -hmm. hit my back pocket as someone who enjoys smokehouse almonds? Um, not very much. The, um, I, I, I won't, I don't have the exact numbers at my fingertips, but if you do some simple calculations like, you know, what share of the cost of producing almonds are represented by bees, this almond pollination fee that went up, uh, you say it went up by 20%. Uh, suppose that, suppose that, um, I'll, I'll make up a number that's approximately true. It's, it's probably a little high. We'll just say it's approximate. Suppose that 10% of the cost of producing almonds is the cost of paying beekeepers for pollination. Mm -hmm. so, ten, so if you say the pollination fees went up by 20%, and that's 10% of the total cost of producing almonds, well, 10% of 20% is 2%. Right. So now what you're saying is that this fairly dramatic increase in pollination fees that you described has resulted in a 2% increase in the cost of producing almonds at the farm gate, now, what is the cost share of almonds at the farm gate in a can of smokehouse almonds or almond milk or whatever, however mm -hmm. else we're t contemplating consuming almonds? And those, those shares are remarkably small. Um, it's going to be 30% or something because so much of the cost of producing the final consumer good is you know, the roasting and the salting and the sorting and the packaging and the putting them in trucks and the, and the marketing. Right. Uh, and I don't, I don't know that number, you know, the, what is the almond cost share in the final product? But if it's a third, well, now this, you know, a third of the 2% is now two-thirds of a percent. So that's going to be the increase, the implied increase in smokehouse almonds on the shelf. And the share is going to be smaller for almond milk and other more processed goods. Right, so, right. so I would say that uh, this fairly dramatic increase in pollination fees is not going to be perceptible right. to consumers. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, you know, not that not that it's absent, but it's it's going to be quite small. Right. Uh, another. So you, you talked about uh, the pollen. I mean, uh, almond pollination prices. They have increased. They they started to increase before the CCD event in 2007, and I think you guys also looked at uh, uh, package B prices, and they have increased um, over the years. But pollination prices increased before the crisis, a couple of years before, and I think it, in your research it looked like package B prices increased, but only a couple of years after ccd there was a delay in that increase is, is that true and and what do you think happened there yeah um i mean to answer your second question i don't really know i mean i don't have a single cause uh, i think i know i'll I'll, tell you what i think 
but go ahead. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, it's in the data. I mean, you're right. Uh, you, you've, there's some charts in a recent publication of ours that show the increase in package fees in 2009. What's, what's your explanation? Yeah, so everyone heard the story that the bees are dying at an alarming rate. And everyone said, I'm going to jump in and save those boogers before it's too late. So we had, mm -hmm. so it's, again, it's the supply and demand. The supply stayed the same, mm -hmm. but the demand went up significantly in, uh, started yeah. going up in 2008, probably 2009 as this message that, um, all the bees are dying got out. And I think, uh, is, I, I don't think we've peaked. Uh, we may have planed off, but the, the, uh, the backyard beekeeping segment has really exploded, uh, in the last 10 to, to 12 years. And I think that's where that uh, increase in package prices came from. Oh, that's interesting. And I mean, package bees are the, the, the mode the, the method of increase of choice by hobbyists and sideliners, whereas large commercial beekeepers largely split and requeen. All right. Is, so is my understanding. Yeah, so so what you're talking about is an effect, and I, I mean, if you look in the data, I do think it is it's package bees, not so much queens that had that 2009 bump. So I, yeah, I mean, I don't. That that certainly passes my. Yeah. So if we if we look at uh, uh, county associations, so let's look at number of county associations pre 2005, six, and number of county beekeeping associations post or like from 2008 or nine on, I think you're going to see a big uh, jump there. And if you look at uh, not just the number of those associations, but the number of members in those associations, or if you just look at membership level at, at the North Carolina State Beekeepers Association, I think those would all be good numbers to, to look at if you wanted to support that, uh, that idea. But, yeah, that's interesting. I think it's also true that both the queen and the package industries uh, are subject to increasing costs in the short run, but I think those industries could expand at relatively constant costs if there was a there was a permanent increase in demand for package fees from the hobbyists and sideliners. You should see that price sort of falling back to more "quote unquote" normal levels, mm -hmm. which I think is consistent with with the data as we see them. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, no, that's uh, that's an interesting explanation. I hadn't thought of that. Oh, oh yeah. Well, good. I'm glad I had a little something for you today. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Um, any any other uh, observations that uh, that you want to talk about? Uh, no, we we could we could talk uh, for a long time about bee economics. We haven't exhausted the interesting topics, but we sort of hit the uh, hit the ones that have intrigued me yeah. in recent years and, and the ones that I think have some uh, kind of public conversation bite to them. Yeah, so, yeah. so I listened to your, oh, we yeah. can talk again. You did a, you did a podcast with uh, uh, Russ Roberts. So I guess it's a podcast that economists listen to, or it's a, or it's a podcast about economics. Did a podcast in yes. 2013. Yeah. Econ talk is the name of his Econ podcast. talk. Yes. I'll try to post a link yeah, to that. A few years ago, I talked to him. Yeah, I'll try to post a link to that in our in our description. But I, I just listened to that the other week, and that was a great, uh, great little podcast. And you talked a lot about about I mean, talked about a lot of what we talked about today, and it was fun to to listen to two economists uh, talk about bees, especially you know you understood bees and beekeeping. But the host, he was brand new to, to bees. Like, it was so fun to listen to this fella ask, you know, the elementary questions about, about beekeeping. You know, do they sleep? Uh, how do they find their home when you move them? Stuff like that. And that was, that was yeah. a lot of fun to yeah. listen to. <laughs> you did a great job uh, with that. And, uh, oh, thanks. Yeah, well, he's a, yeah, he, he was quite quite intrigued by the you could tell he was, economy, as, he as, was as most people are when they first learn about it yeah yeah he was really interested 
and uh, you guys did a yeah. great job. And uh, at the end of the program, he said, because he was still interested, you guys spent the last half of the program really talking about the economics of it. And at the end, he's like, let's see. Um, he said, what is the most interesting things about most interesting thing about bees that we have not talked about today. So he still had that thirst for bee knowledge. He was looking for another nugget. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you kind of thought for a, mo for a moment, and then you said something like, you know, the, the most interesting thing is it's not so much about bees, but it's about the people and how eager folks seem to be to, to believe the gloom and doom scenarios about bees when there's some pretty straightforward facts that you can look at that would disprove most of what is claimed and and uh there's this something about human psychology that allows them to pick up on these non-facts and just run with them and uh kind of i'm kind of in the in the same boat as you uh, that's definitely something that i wonder about so that was probably six years ago have you yeah. have you considered yeah, that, that uh that question anymore since then come to any conclusions well i continue to be fascinated by the use and abuse of bee statistics mm -hmm. uh, that we talked about a little earlier and i think it's just one example of people do gravitate toward you know doom and gloom stories and i don't think i understand that any better than i did half a dozen years ago right uh i i I do think it's a noble cause to try to disabuse people of false conclusions, which there are a lot of them out there about honeybees. And one reason is not just because it's good to be right, and I, you know, it's good. It's good, it's good to <laughs> it's good for people to think properly about things. You know, that's sort of a noble endeavor in itself. But but I think the bigger reason is that if if you you know to to use another. Uh, what is Aesop fable? It's the boy who cried wolf. It's like, well, if, if the sky's falling everywhere you look, there really are things to worry about. And, you know, and something that I am concerned about is natural habitat preservation um, and wild pollinators and, you know, the, the natural world that I think a lot of us like to retreat to or mm -hmm. live in and, and, and enjoy. And if if you use false reasoning, namely the value of honeybees to promote the preservation of solitary bumblebee habitat, even though they have no connection. I think you, I think you, uh, you, you, you muddy the water, you weaken the argument right. for what the real concern is underlying it. And so I think there's a real cost to, to, to being doom and gloom about everything, even in the face of evidence right. against it. I so there's, there's, there's maybe some, I think I, I think at the time I talked to Russ, I wasn't, I wasn't really on the the wild pollinator, right, uh, bus, and, <laughs> and maybe I am a little bit more now than I was, but that's not honeybees. So, so, yeah. One last thing, since you're the agricultural economist, and I think you, um, do you contribute to the honey report that I see in American or uh, in the American Bee Journal? Or do you keep up with honey prices? Or uh... yeah, no, I don't. I mean, I I see that. Uh, uh, I mean, Pey Peyton Ferrier is another economist I've worked with who was at USDA, did mm -hmm. a lot of honey work, and he may have contributed to that. Uh, Rucker and Berger and I have contributed to the American Bee Journal, but not the not the monthly honey report. No, okay, because I was all, I I didn't get. I didn't go to Apemondia, but I did just get back from the American Beekeeping Federation in uh, Schaumburg, Illinois, last week. And I guess the thing that oh. I heard up there from commercial beekeepers is is that the price of honey is low lately. So that that is an actual concern of mine because, as I said earlier, uh, we're going to have uh, plenty of beekeepers as long as it's profitable to do that. And the lower those honey prices go, the less profitable beekeeping can be. So I think that that can be a, a real concern. So I haven't dug uh, into that yet to see uh, how, how low honey prices are going and, and what the, what the forces are that are pushing that. But I think that that is, uh, that is an issue actually worth looking into. And uh, I haven't heard anything about that except for at a beekeeper meeting. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I don't know about uh, the, very recent 
low honey prices you're talking about. But as an economist, the first place I would look for variations in uh, honey price paid in the United States is, is the world market for honey because we import so much honey mm-hmm. from Argentina and other places that, uh, you know, the, we're in some sense, we are small players in the world market for honey. There's a lot of global honey trade. And there are issues with that too, adulterated honey, a lot of interesting yep. issues you can think about there. But I would, I would look to see what uh, international markets have to say about that. Yeah, yeah. So I think my, uh, I think my four concepts of uh, economics uh, serve me pretty well today. So, and I, you know, I'm not going to be a, a good economist down the road, but supply and demand, risk reward, opportunity cost, guns and butter. You know that's a that's a pretty good basis to 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 be thinking about as we're thinking about all these issues. So <laughs> completely, I, th- I think I think you've hit the I think you've hit at the core of the economic way of yeah. thinking. All right. Well, that was a real uh, treat, Doctor Thurman. I sure do appreciate you uh, spending time with me this morning, and uh, thank you uh, for all, all the work that you do for for agriculture. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Louis. I enjoyed this a lot. All right. We'll talk talk to to you soon. All right. Great discussion with Dr. Thurman today. I hope you enjoyed that. Maybe even learned a thing or two. Uh, I believe this is going to wrap up season one of the Well-Managed Hive. The bees are slowly starting to build up. The bee schools are starting. Uh, My phone is starting to ring, and I'm starting to log those miles on the truck as the bee season builds. So just as we put our colonies to bed in October or November, and we look forward to getting back to them in the spring, um, putting the podcast to bed for the season. I might do another season in November or December of 2020, but we'll see. Thank you for listening this year. Maybe we'll see you next year. Cheers.